Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And I'm Brian Colbert Kennedy. And this is the podcast where we dive into a specific topic or question affecting everyone on the planet right now or in the next 10 years or so. Uh, If it can kill us or turn us all into CRISPR robots, we are in. Our guests are scientists, doctors, engineers, politicians, senators, astronauts. We even had a reverend. Uh, And we work together towards action steps our listeners can take, that's you, with your voice, your vote, and your dollar. And this week's episode is a special replay. Our guest is Dr. Gautam Dantas, and we're Mm. talking about how to build new antibiotics in the post-antibiotic era. Post-antibiotic era, which still, since we originally recorded this, is fucking terrifying and keeps me up at night. Exciting, but mostly (laughs) terrifying. (laughs) Right. Um, And he compared it uh, as possibly being similar to the pre-antibiotics era, which, wow. (laughs) Yep. Just go ahead and do a little Wikipedia search for World War I surgery, and you'll be right where we are. Yeah, look at the pictures. You're going to hate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Dantas is the professor of pathology and immunology and biomedical engineering. Why not? Just one thing. Uh, <laughs> at the Washington University School of Medicine, St. Louis. Uh, his Twitter bio is bowtie enthusiast, husband, father, microbial ecologist, genomicist, computational biologist, home brewer, wow. gardener, foodie, pretentious cocktail mixologist, which he's a perfect man. I mean, he's he's our he should be our best friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I mean, yeah, he is in the best way, the smartest, most enthusiastic Care Bear of all time. If, mm-hmm. if Care Bears, you know, weren't creationists and actually <sighs> believed and studied and practiced empirical science and mm-hmm. came from India to America to build a cross-disciplinary lab of international geniuses, that's got him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like uh, Captain Planet, if he wasn't, Captain Planet wasn't quite so weird. Right. Go he's back so, and well, rewatch I- those. It's creepy. Good message, Um, though. Anyways, exciting replays. We built towards more exciting stuff in 2019. We got some cool shit coming your way. Uh, But enjoy one of our very favorite and most uh, played podcasts of all time. Let's go talk to Gautam. Let's do it. Our guest today is Dr. Gautam Dantas. And uh, together, we're going to discuss designing antibiotics in the post-antibiotics age. Uh, Dr. Dantas, welcome. Thank you, Quinn. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're very excited. Um, Gautam, tell us real quick uh, who you are and what you do. Uh, My official title is I'm a professor of pathology and immunology uh, at uh, Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. Uh, I have a number of other titles, but they're sort of irrelevant here, Uh, uh, just (laughs) other affiliations and departments. Um, What I do here is I run a research lab, uh, about 20 to 30 people, uh, where we investigate uh, microbes, so these bugs that you you know can't see with the naked eye, across a whole bunch of different scales. We're interested in, uh, at the 30,000-foot view, uh, how is it that microbes, both individually and in communities, respond to perturbation? So if you know the environment changes or we try to mess with them, uh, how do they respond? Uh, and then you know we try to understand that from the perspective of you know, clinical settings like antibiotic resistance and pathogens, but we also try to sort of turn it on its head and maybe take that uh, information to engineer bacteria to do good things. For instance, better probiotics or better ways in which to produce uh, renewable fuels from plant matter, things of that ilk. Small potatoes, though. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, very, very <laughs> limited ambitions in our lab. So. Kind of like your day, Brian. <laughs> I do I do the exact same thing. That's so wild. Right. Uh, just with coffee. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. And uh, by the way, this is com- completely unrelated, but uh, in our research 
on you, which is again always creepy when we say that. We've been looking um, you up, man. Um, I, I'm trying to think of the way to put this most succinctly, but looking at the people in your lab on your people page, uh, there's like 30 full-on geniuses working for you. <laughs> and I was so excited to see that there's only like three white guys. Um, yeah, that's amazing. That's uh, it's like finally, you know, time is our time is up, man. Right. Uh, uh, so, a uh, one little correction, if you wouldn't mind, uh, not working for me, but working with me. I mean, uh, the reason I yes. come to, to, to lab, you know, my major motivation is to hang out with these really cool people and to learn, you know, what they're thinking about. Um, and I always sort of preface every talk I give publicly uh, to very sincerely say that uh, any good science is team science. And I'm really, really fortunate to work with an awesome team. And uh, and I think, you know, we we honestly set out to, uh, more focus on diversity of opinion. Uh, I love people who challenge me and make me think in new ways. And I think that has then manifested itself in diversity in other ways. Well, that's so cool to hear. It's kind of the point that feels like folks have been trying to make for a while, which is like one leads to the other and, uh, or, or, or that's the idea. And, and as you've said, uh, here that has proven itself out and it feels like we could do a much better job of, of working on things like that. Oh, there's no question. I I think one of the most depressing and, and I'm hoping inspirational things I saw at, a retreat, just a mini symposium we had here, one of our students, rather than spending time on a poster based on kind of their science, which is really cool, uh, they instead uh, presented a kind of provocative finding, uh, just looking at the distribution in terms of uh, males, females, uh, underrepresented minorities, and non-American born people in terms of who uh, and this is a demographic across uh, professors, right, across the nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's it's as depressing as you might imagine. Like, you know, the, the yeah. it's dominated by old white dudes. Uh, and then, uh, <laughs> right? and then uh, you know, women who, even though they represent well over 50% of undergraduates and graduates, by the time you get to tenured faculty, they're down in the sort of middling teens. But probably the worst hit demographic uh, across the board uh, are U.S. domestic minorities uh, in terms of underrepresented mm-hmm. folks, and and he what he was doing in this case is just trying to take that and understand how that plays out uh, at you know a, a quote unquote liberal place like uh, like Washu uh, in terms of who we invite in terms of seminar speakers in terms of their mm-hmm. demographics, uh, and and it's abysmal, right? Like across the board, still, even though it's the the young, the the the, the people who you know you don't need to preach that quite technically anymore, who are part of the, the the system. Eventually, when you see who actually comes out and gives talks here about their research, it's still dominated by the old white dudes, and the, again, the worst demographic in terms of even further underrepresentation are the domestic underrepresented minorities. So we just need to do something about that. Yeah, and, and I'll yeah. tell you, we we face uh, sort of the s- same issue here with the the guests we try to get on. We are hell bent on having at least half women and uh, many more people of color than 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 the average where, wherever they come from, and it's hard. Um, and I'll look up sometime and be like, "Oh shit, we just had three white guys in a row." Like yeah. that is so frustrating. As I'm actively working against that. But uh, and it's hard. And, and, you know, you can be thankful for what all those old white guys have done over the past 50 sure. years. But at the same time, at the same time, it's like uh, time to go to pasture. Yeah. Let's uh, <laughs> let's move on. Oh, at least again, you know, you let's just move. seek out the diversity of opinion. And I think it'll eventually work itself out. Right? Otherwise, 
Yeah, it's also just in terms of science, right? Science just doesn't move as fast if you're in the echo chamber. So, well, and it, it, you see it come through too in things like you know, uh, I can't remember if it was Google. There was an artificial intelligence piece that came out a couple months ago that said there it was just terrible uh, using on facial facial recognition uh, for African American yes, folks, yeah. and it's because really? they just didn't train it on African-American folks because there was no one in the lab. And it's like, well, yes, of course. Uh, that is yeah. maddening. God, and let's set up our conversation uh, uh, for today. Um, we are champions of action-oriented questions, and we are going to dive deep on today's topic, uh, which is pretty pretty nerdy. Pretty, pretty nerdy. Pretty nerdy and awesome. Um, and, and then we're going to come up with some some specific uh, steps that everyone here can take uh, to uh, to take action and, and make a little uh, dent in the universe. Does that sound all right? That's perfect. Um, so, Gautam, we start with one important question to really get the heart of why you're here today. Um, so instead of saying, uh, tell us your life story, uh, we like to ask, why are you vital to the survival of the species? Oh, something simple like that. Yeah, yeah. okay. Really uh, simple. <laughs> we ease you into it. <laughs> exactly. There's no way to answer that question without some, you know, recognition of hubris. So I'll start with that <laughs> uh, and say, you know, if there's a contribution that I'm making, uh, it's hopefully, honestly, at the level of enticing other people to want to solve problems with me. Uh, it's not actually the specific problems. I mean, I think, you know, I certainly think the problems I'm working on are important. But, you know, if I was to see myself as somewhat of a catalyst in terms of making this a better future, it's... You know, if I can draw in the right group of folks to, to think in ways that they haven't thought before, uh, to encourage me to think in ways I haven't thought before, and then apply that to, you know, some fundamental understanding of how the world works. I think that's hopefully uh, the best contribution I can hope for. I love it. That's great. Um, groups groups of diverse folks working together to save the world um, is like the Avengers, but once again, with fewer white guys, um, because if there's anything I realized in watching infinity war, which was great, it, it was, was just like, yeah, boy, just... there's, there's, a, there's a lot of white guys on that screen. <laughs> exactly. wow. yeah. Um, and then they didn't kill any of them. Uh, spoiler alert. Anyways. Um, uh, Brian, did you I not see I haven't it? seen it yet. Oh man, I'm sorry. Fine. Um, we saw it right. two days ago, so I think we're in the clear. So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All right, Gautam. So uh, we're going to establish some context uh, sort of on our reader's level for today's topic. Um, we call it a few different things. Context 101 with Professor Brian. Um, it's it's an exclusive history lesson, uh, and it's greatly oversimplified. It often veers completely off course and uh, is sometimes very wrong. It's a little bit like a like a book <laughs> report. You mostly furiously copied from the internet, uh, plastering in your own barely informed opinions uh, late the night uh, before it was due. But that's why we've got you here to correct us. Fair enough. It's so perfect for me to be doing this because that's exactly what I did. In yeah, school. exactly. Um, you know, we're, we're usually joking about this stuff, but, you know, in this case... In this specific case. <laughs> please remember that we are not doctors uh, and always consult a professional before making changes to your medication. Right. And and again, if by the way, if you're interested in what's about to happen here, check out our previous episode with the wonderful Dr. Nahid Badalia, who, remember... Everyone, uh, be thankful <laughs> if you have prayers or whatever those things might be at the end of the night. She is your last line of defense uh, between you and, and basically the Andromeda strain. <laughs> yeah. So, um, all right. So first off, let's talk about bacteria, okay? Uh, yes. Not just the horrendous things that your child's hands are covered in after crawling around in the airport bathroom floor. My kid. 
My kids are so gross. <sighs> they're cute. Um, uh, but seriously, uh, uh, they're they're not all bad. My okay? kids are bacteria. <laughs> <laughs> all your children are terrible. <laughs> right. No, no, not all bacteria are bad. Don't let people say that. Um, the, the bacteria in, in our gut keeps us alive, man. Some, True. Some, sciences say, some scientists say that uh, the bacteria in our gut actually control everything from digestion to even our moods. Right. And that's a eat a varied diet. Full of plants, kids. <laughs> yes. Right? Uh, and oh, speaking of plants, bacteria aren't plants and, and they're not animals. Well, what are they? Uh, they are microscopic, single-celled organisms that exist in neighborhoods of millions of their friends. Wow. Ev- everywhere, literally everywhere. It's like Brooklyn. Uh, growing, constantly mutating, both inside and outside other organisms. Wow. Yeah. Uh, we actually came from bacteria. And some bacteria can glow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some Damn bacteria it. can cause species-ending outbreaks also. Um, and basically, the entire Earth is just a big ball of bacteria. That's uh, amazing. Uh, no bacteria, no cheese. No bacteria, no wine, no pickles. So, you know, you're welcome. Wow, nice. No bread, uh, no bacteria. No bread and no beer. Oh, like, are you God. kidding? All I don't the, want a life without bacteria. <laughs> they come in three shapes. Uh, some of them eat food. Some uh, make their own right at home. It's like a... It's like my mom with the blue apron or what it was when she used a sun basket, I think. Oh, yeah. Oh, those are so fun. Yes, the right. bacteria are like your mom. Um, so what do they eat? Well, they eat everything, including, it turns out, antibiotics, which, uh, uh, you know, not great, Bob. We're going to get to that. Um, antibiotics are great. They changed the 20th century. It used to be, you know, uh, got an infection. Cool. Here comes the saw. I'm going to take your leg away from the rest of your body <laughs> right. uh, forever. So, um, you know, it, it's now it's, you know, you go to urgent care, you walk out and a few hours, mm. quick, uh, a few to several hours, <laughs> uh, quick stop at, you know, CVS or whatever. And, and you're back to normal 10 days later, you know, like it never happened. So it's, amazing. You know, it's easy. It's treatable. It's repeatable. Right. You can thank people uh, like Louis Pasteur, one of my favorite books of all time, The Value of Believing in Yourself. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, that's kind of part of the issue, right? right? Cough, antibiotics, Netflix, repeat. We've become very comfy with this routine. Right. And I've, I mean, so often, especially in now having kids, I, I see this happen all the time, but can I say something? Please. Kids, let me tell you what happens now. They take a <laughs> sick day and you know what they get to do? Watch on TV. Anything, and whatever, anything that's ever been created from the history of mankind, and they can order it w- with their whiny, coffee little voice. <laughs> Siri, play Spartacus. Siri, play Finding Nevo. Siri, play Star Trek. You know what I had, Brian? I whatever my mom was able to fight for video update, or yeah. once the town got fancy, a uh, blockbuster Ooh, video update, or huh? worn down Indiana Jones tapes we had at home. Anyways, <laughs> all I'm saying is there's a lot of complaining. And it's a little unfair. I remember. I'm, I'm you know, there's you. a lot of people okay. listening to this who have no idea what you just said. Like, blockbuster. <laughs> what were those <laughs> words? No. All right. Tape. So, but, <laughs> getting back to bacteria very quickly here and the apocalypse uh, that is forthcoming. Right. right. Uh, we're prescribing and taking way too many antibiotics now and too frequently. And for too many folks and, and in way, way, way too many of the animals we eat. Right. And, and now, you know, guess what? They, they, they mutated. My kids? No, 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 no. Your kids are fine. The bacteria mutated. And antibiotics are working less well. We'll just say they're working less well. Great. So what's the good news? Well, the good news uh, is that uh, Gautam's here to tell us how he's going to single-handedly save us from the future we've created. Perfect. <laughs> Which, <laughs> Which I think, is that yep, Terminator 2? That's, that's Terminator 2. Yeah. Yep, Terminator 2. Gautam. Nope, no press. John, John Connor. <laughs> um, all right, so with that horrendous history lesson, um, <laughs> let's focus Wasn't on our bad. topic of the weeks, which is designing antibiotics and, and dealing with bacteria 
uh, which it seems like we're finding out more and more about in this sort of post new antibiotics age. So Gautam, you were in the news recently, like you said, you're very busy. Can you tell us why? Yeah, sure. So actually, first of all, Brian, uh, that was a whether we use a cheese seal or not, that was a great intro. So I think you got it. You right. can call that, it a. That was you, off the top of my head. It was. You can call it. A, you can call it a car wreck if you <laughs> need. No, to. no, it wasn't. It was. I think you hit all the right points. And so, yeah, giving bacteria their uh, their due in terms of recognizing that most of them are good. That uh, not just millions. In fact, the estimate is our gut has trillions of bacteria in, them, in each individual. But I say gut. millions. I meant trillions. Yeah. So, you probably so, so, <laughs> the factor of yeah, two. Lots, right? lots, lots <laughs> more zeros, but. But then there are a couple of these bad guys, right? And what we try to do with them, uh, you know, as you said, change the 20th century is we try to kill them with these chemicals. And so about 10 years ago is where the story starts in terms of the one that just got published. We stumbled across this really bizarre finding. And so we know that as we've used antibiotics to try to treat the bad bugs, to try to kill them, over the last 80 or 90 years, you know, more and more of them have become resistant to those those antibiotics. And we, we've kind of come to, to, to accept that, that resistance is out there uh, and we need to keep ahead of the game by coming up with new antibiotics. But 10 years ago, uh, in a slightly weird experiment, a kind of bizarre experiment, we stumbled across this finding that there are bacteria out there in the soil that can actually munch on these antibiotics. They can eat them uh, as their sole source of food. So just the way we think right. of most bacteria using something like glucose, right, your standard sugar to grow, right. uh, these guys were instead using antibiotics. And something actually got lost along the way that I, I should really emphasize more. Some of the bacteria we found can't even use glucose as their food. They would rather use penicillin. Oh, right? not even so an option. They've lost wow. the ability to use glucose, but they can eat these antibiotics. And so uh, this this goes uh, back to what I was saying earlier, right? This is the the, the shock and awe and, and, and uh, really scary aspect of working on this because we thought, you know, that somehow some Frankenstein bugs had got into our lab and we had to clear out. Uh, but then we calm down a little bit to start asking why had this happened? And so this is what's taken the 10 years is we described that phenomenon 10 years ago. Lots of bugs from lots of different soils right. from around the country could munch on pretty much any antibiotic we threw at them. What we just uh, uh, disclosed, not because we, just because it took that long to figure out, was how four specific strains of these soil bacteria could uh, utilize penicillin. So it could eat penicillin, uh, specifically every single gene, every single pathway <laughs> laid out. And then uh, as a way in which to hopefully turn the tables on these bugs, we use that information to engineer a new strain of E. coli uh, to have that same property, uh, the the property to eat penicillin, uh, as a potential way to maybe bioremediate, to to clean up uh, all of the antibiotic contamination that comes from our, as you mentioned, wanton and overuse of antibiotics. So that that was one way in which we think that, you know, even though our motivation was sort of basic science, let's understand this bizarre phenomenon. We thought, well, one application from this could be that we could actually help in the the path of, you know, like everything we do as humans in terms of dumping all our waste all over the place. Uh, one way in which to maybe be a little bit more responsible and come up with a strategy to clean up the antibiotics before they get leached out to the environment. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> let me, and again, we're always trying to, I don't want to say dumb things down for our listeners, but you know, our, our listeners are sort of the the nerdy contingent of the Pod Save America folks. So, but uh, if you could clarify one thing for me, so is this just something we discovered ten years ago, and is we think has been 
they've had this ability or wanton desire to, to eat antibiotics the whole time, or is that a new change? Now, okay, so actually I should even clarify the record a little bit more. We stumbled across this phenomenon 10 years ago, but when we mm-hmm. li- dig, dig through the literature, there are actually studies dating back to the 60s uh, where people describe a, a couple of bacteria that they've been able to identify from the environment that could eat a couple antibiotics. Uh, and then there were a couple more reports in the 80s of this happening, but I think we just didn't have the technology back then to then do the one step further, which is to show how. So what we did 10 years ago was show that this was, these weren't just one-off events but that these bacteria were, you know, were pretty diverse. Lots of different bugs could do this, and they could do them against. Uh, they could eat lots of different antibiotics. So we expanded the kind of, uh, you know, what was at the buffet table, if you will. So, so again, even though you know that was a, a big paper for us, you know, in a sense, it was a rediscovery from something that the field had known, at least at some level, fifty years before that. Interesting. Uh, but then I think maybe the crux of your question is perhaps. You know, how old are these capacities, right? Are these things that have been sort of evolved over the human time scale, uh, or are they just old features that we haven't discovered before? Uh, and I put my money on the second, right? That is, everything that we've done to kind of begin to maybe piece apart why these properties exist, why do these bugs have this ability to eat our chemotherapeutics uh, points, at least from an ecological perspective, to something that they evolved a really, really, really long time ago. And the reason we believe this is even this is the same thing that happened with antibiotic resistance, right? The the intuitive framing of it is okay, a bug is susceptible, that is, it will die if you give it an antibiotic, the antibiotic will kill it. And then over time it figures out it evolves some particular way in which to become resistant. That's the traditional framing of any new property being evolved. But really, when people have again dug deep, if you will, we found as a field that antibiotic resistance in the environment is an ancient property. It's not a new thing. What we're doing is we're allowing existing resistance genes to amplify and pop into the the bad bugs. And so a really, really cool story uh, that came out about 10 years ago now from this uh, group in Canada led by Jerry. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I'm going to preface this by saying that you might think it's cool and everybody else might find it fucking terrifying. So please continue. Okay, yes. Uh, when I say cool, yeah, paraphrase fucking terrifying instead of that. Um, yeah. So, uh, but okay, so here's the deal. So th- this group goes out, again, led by Jerry Wright at McMaster University, and they, they go to the Beringian permafrost in Canada and they core out these samples that they can carbon date to be 30,000 years old. And then from mm-hmm. these 30,000 year old samples, they sequence the DNA. And in that DNA sequence, they find resistance genes against modern antibiotics. So this was very, very, very clear evidence that resistance in the environment clearly predates any human use of antibiotics. Like we went around making antibiotics 30,000 years ago, let alone 100 right. years ago. <laughs> right. uh, and so, right. uh, so, so that, this was proof, even though it's been speculated over and over again, this should happen. And the nice explanation for this is we sort of think of antibiotics as these privileged molecules, these things that, you know, we should, and it makes sense, we should treat very carefully. They're going to kill all of the bad bugs. But how did we find them? Almost all of these drugs that we use in in the clinic now that we call antibiotics were originally discovered as natural products of soil bacteria. So people literally went between the 1940s and 1960s, it was the heyday of this discovery. They cultured up bacteria from the soil, 
and found that, lo and behold, some of them make these compounds which kill other bacteria. And that's all we did. We just borrowed that particular uh, uh, scheme from these very specific group of antibiotic producers. But think of what's going on in this case, right? So these bugs have figured out a way in which to produce chemicals that kill lots and lots of other bacteria, which, as it turns out, would also mean they would kill themselves. So if they didn't have a way in which to resist these really offense toxic molecules, as soon as they evolved that property, they would commit suicide. So there was this nice theory put forward almost 40, 45 years ago by this guy, Julian Davies, and his colleagues, which was pretty simple. It said the antibiotic producer organisms must be the guys who initially evolved resistance, other, you know, basically for self-protection. Yeah. And they've had now you know, millions to billions of years to disseminate, to pass out these resistance cassettes to everyone else. And so our discovery of antibiotic eating, even though it still surprises me when I say that, uh, if you step back for a second and look at it from a bacterium's perspective or microbial community's perspective, it's just one more part of the cycle, right? These bugs are producing sure. antibiotics. And so there's some other bugs decided, okay, you know, it's a toxin. Yep, it's going to kill most of my neighbors. And so maybe let's figure out a way in which to eat it. And so, again, terrifying from the perspective of the clinic, but but right. not, not bizarre from the perspective of how compounds get exchanged between bacteria and the environment. Well, and you also just have to give evolution credit. And again, uh, you know, right. a reminder that like bacteria were literally the first thing, you know, like single set, like they are the, what do the kids say, Brian? The OG, the original? The kids like, say the OG, yeah. Right? <laughs> we, like that's where we come from. Of course they've had time to evolve and find ways to, to defeat, uh, you know, they've been dealing with themselves much less, you know, the, these silly drugs that we have, you know, it sounds like we like to say we developed them, but really right. we've just sort of stolen did them. Did some borrowing. <laughs> did some borrowing. Yeah, and, and we've, I mean, to give, to give the, the, the organic chemists their due, I mean, they have optimized them. We have come up with better versions of them, but the original, the original, you know, the original molecules, yeah, like, you know, again, I, 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 I'm stealing this phrase from a colleague of mine, but Please. you know, the, the very, very best chemists I know are bacteria. The very, very best biochemists <laughs> I know are bacteria. Right. Uh, so, you know, they already know how to do these amazingly cool things. If we're lucky, we figure them out and then use them for our benefit. Which is actually interesting. So, you know, and, and we'll. Get, I would love to talk in a little bit about, like you said, how do we turn it into... Uh, into a, into a benefit, like how you're just creating E. coli in the lab, um, <laughs> but, and enlightens a little bit sort of what has been, and makes less surprising how bacteria has become or become more adapted to our antibiotics in the sense that we have given, uh, again, we've talked about the overprevalence of antibiotics, especially in our food and our water, and then in, in sort of the overprescription among, among humans. And then it it makes it not surprising that bacteria have been able to adapt to those and to create, you know, some of these superbugs where, you know, some of these folks have gone into the hospital the past few years and they've tried 17 different antibiotics and including the nukes and none of them work. And it makes you go like, oh, yeah, well, they've been doing that for forever. This is just the next step for them. That's exactly right. And there's also one, I mean, I know... You, you told me to keep it sort of nerdy light, but I think there's one one important aspect. <laughs> no, to be clear, let's do this. We'll dumb it down. Let's you go do full your part. Um, it, it's just if you hear a bunch of silence from our side, that's just <laughs> trying to figure out what the hell's going on. But so let's let's think about how bacteria evolve anything, right? And so one way that they do it is the way everything on our planet evolves. It's basically by reproducing, right? You pass on you pass on your genes, and you, for that reason, whatever mutations you have to your kids. 
Uh, Brian's and, working on that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, so that's, that's, that's called sort of classical vertical evolution, right? That is literally when you, you know, the, when the bacteria divide the, the ones that they, then the new cells they've made gets, you know, their DNA. And if there's a mutation along the way, it passes on. So that's all well and good. And all of us, all living organisms do exactly that. But bacteria do one other thing, or one other way in which they evolve, which is which is just fascinating and awesome and bizarre, and is really important for antibiotic resistance. And that's something okay. called lateral or horizontal gene transfer. So vertical gene transfer is the one I told you, right? You give it to your progeny. Horizontal or lateral gene transfer is the ability for bacteria to pass their genes, their genetic material back and forth between very, very different bacteria. And in so doing, they pass their traits or their properties on, right? Uh, so uh, for the, the analogous version of this, which we know is ludicrous, would be you deciding tomorrow that, you know what, I really would like to smell like a pineapple all the time. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go, you know, get the, get the DNA that the pineapple uses to smell like a pineapple. And somehow that's going to insert into my genome. And then you're going to be, you know, pineapple. Wow. Quick, right. And so Quinn, you would smell amazing. <laughs> to be clear, the world needs no, this. Clearly. And, and, you know, people are probably working on crazy, you know, CRISPR techniques to do that. But at least as oh, of yeah. now, naturally, we know that shit can't happen. Right. It's wow. uh, right. And it's, you said it's called horizontal gene, gene transfer. 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 Horizontal. I, I feel like that's the terminology they used in like health yeah. class in seventh grade when they wanted <laughs> to teach us about sex, yeah. but didn't really want to do it. They were oh, like, yeah. listen, it's terrible. I it's called horizontal right gene transfer. <laughs> that, that's how you get the kids interested now. It, it's, it is the, 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 the colloquial <laughs> version is that's bacterial sex. Right. That's, <laughs> right, that's how that. you know they're passing along genetic material between. And so again, they're doing it across these vastly different bacteria, just moving things back and forth. And think of what happens when that particular type of transfer gives you a huge advantage uh, when all of your neighbors are dying. For in instance, right. when you're getting hit with antibiotics. Sure. So you can take a massive population, right? Millions, billions, whatever cells. You only need a couple of them to initially have antibiotic resistance genes. This is the genetic material that allows them to be resistant to the antibiotic. Now, if they start moving those genes back and forth with lots of the bacteria around them through this process of bacterial sex or so horizontal gene transfer, you've now got a very, very, very fast way to move those properties across. And just our dumb luck, bacteria tend to accumulate all of these genes together. So that means... You know, in one fell swoop, you can move 5, 10, 15 genes across from one bug to the other. And what you've done now is if all of those were resistance genes in one step, something that can take on the order of 10, 15 minutes right, or less, you can move the ability to be resistant to 15 antibiotics. So hold on. Hold on. They can do this. And are you just being facetious? No, no, 10 no, to 15 no, 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 no. These are measured rates of horizontal gene transfer. Oh, no, no, th that's bad. This shouldn't that's surprise insane. people too much because something like E. coli, right? A workhorse organism in a lab, but also, you know, all of us in our guts have, you know, maybe two or three strains of benign or good E. coli. They divide, right. they divide every 20 or 30 minutes, right? So their lifetime is 20 or 30 minutes. So it shouldn't be all that surprising that they can also pass DNA uh, at rates that are, in fact, a lot faster than that. And so this is the issue. This is why resistance can transfer and, and why resistance has spread so damn quickly is you've had all of this resistance in the environment for millions to billions of years. Uh, in a sense, we just got lucky that we happened to find a group of chemicals that the original pathogens, the pathogens that were killing people 100 years ago, were not resistant. They're kind of the weirdos almost, right? Uh, they happen to be really weak in comparison to the guys in the soil. 
we start hitting them with antibiotics. And every once in a while, when they go out, uh, you know, to party, that is when they poop them out, um, they're going to interact with some of these guys in the soil and pick up their resistance genes. And then the amplification starts. So that's the reason we're at this precipice of, you know, talking about being shit scared about things. You know, people have been starting to, to call this the post-antibiotic era. And we should be really, really, really scared if that's actually true, right? Post-antibiotic era is equal to pre-antibiotic era, which meant that, you know, you go along on your... Which is just World War One, basically. Uh, yeah, exactly, right? Think about the, the, the... A lot of people will point towards the discovery and then the industrial production of penicillin as changing at least some aspect of World War Two, at least, right? Sure. I mean, the difference, just yeah. the difference between those between those two wars, it's 25 years, but penicillin changed Completely, everything. right? And again, how was that discovered? Completely serendipitously, right? This is the, like, this is a case of, you know, Alexander Fleming winning, winning a Nobel Prize partly because he was sloppy when he went on vacation, right? Uh, uh, right. Of course. <laughs> Which I've been sloppy on vacation. <laughs> I've, nothing has come yeah, of What prizes have you garnered? Uh, <laughs> I've got three kids. That's what happened. Of course, you know, that's big. He obviously has been hunting for molecules of this type, but eventually the way he found it was, yeah, we know the story. He left his windows open and a mold came and grew on his plate and he saw that the mold had big zones of clearing around it and voila, discovery of penicillin. Uh, now, it took those other chemists, right? Florian Chain, you know, almost another 10, 15 years right. to commercialize it, to make it at high scale. Uh, but yeah, that's the birth of the antibiotic era. Hey guys, it's Quinn. If you're listening to this, you obviously like podcasts, and you probably like music too. On Spotify, you can listen to all of that in one place for free. You don't even need a premium account. On Spotify, you can follow your favorite podcasts, so you never miss an episode. You can download episodes to listen to offline, wherever you might be, and you can easily share what you're listening to with your friends via Spotify's integrations with social platforms like Instagram. Spotify has a huge catalog of podcasts on every topic, including the one you're listening to right now. You can just search for Important Not Important on the Spotify app or browse podcasts in the Your Library tab. Very convenient. And of course, you can follow us so you never miss an episode of Important Not Important. Uh, Spotify is the world's leading music streaming service, and now it can be your go-to for podcasts too. Okay, Brian's breathing into a paper yeah, bag over here. So <laughs> I'm fine. Everything's fine. So it 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 sounds like the point is they've been able to do things like this forever, essentially. And the antibiotic era that we're so proud of and has been so effective and has saved probably a billion lives, it seems like uh, that moment in a in a in a in a like a comic book movie or a comic book where you defeat the bad guy and you're like yay and then you realize like that wasn't the that real wasn't bad, the bad guy, guy. <laughs> that was like the henchman and it's whatever now like the war has just begun uh-huh. or or <sighs> you know it was like a haha that was just the thing I sent oh man okay I'm still kind of processing <laughs> this okay so it's interesting so it's funny I, I've been sort of thinking on this theory which which i have to do more thinking on because you've sort of thrown it to a loop a little bit which is some of these elements still work which is basically like we're we're clearly like you said in a, in a moment of necessary transition realizing the capabilities that bacteria have had all all along uh and how they have very are able to very quickly apply themselves to to our relatively puny and temporary 
uh, winds, <laughs> which, as you said, were against some of the weaker bacteria, like cholera, which I never heard someone call that one weak, but apparently so, which is <laughs> also weak not just great. One of these properties, right? They're strong in terms of being able to mess with sure. us, right? To cause us to shit ourselves right, to death sure. in terms of cholera. But they were right. weak just in the perspective that, yeah, for whatever reason, those particular bugs which adapted and begin to cause us, you know, to have diseases didn't have yeah. resistance mechanisms to those antibodies. Right. And we've changed that. Right, right, right. Well, right. And 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 now it's uh, among the things that are left or like you said, that are the, whether they're new pathogens or, or things that are be, being found in the ar- Arctic ice cores, <laughs> we're finding there's things that we're not quite prepped for. So I, I had kind of had this thought and I'll just blow through, which is sort of a parallel with climate change, right? Which is man creates amazing tool and uses resource to literally in, in a lot of ways construct the 20th century with fossil fuels, right? You know, the industrial era doesn't happen without the innovation. It's great. It lifts, you know, at the time, probably uh, when it started a billion and a half people across the planet a- out of poverty and creates so much change. Uh, except uh, that in the trade-off is it unwittingly causes the planet to catch a fever. <laughs> now we don't have any idea how to undo the damage we've caused, right? We can, we can slow it down. We can start to replace it with other uh, naturally occurring resources, but figuring out how to actually undo it, in that case, it's like carbon capture. Carbon capture might be either not feasible for a variety of technical or or, or financial factors, or it might just be impossible, right? Actually impossible. So, so there's there's trade-offs. And for antibiotics, it, it was, hey, TB and cholera are a nightmare and have been for, I don't know, a couple thousand years. And look, we can make them go away, which now you've described it was like a temporary win. Mm-hmm. This stuff is great. Let's use it everywhere even proactively in these cows that everybody eats. And oh no, now we've created climate change in our bodies, which that's a horrific analogy. No, I think it's actually a good analogy. So I, I think that it's, that, you know, you went towards the Marvel universe, so I, I'll go back there too, right? The, 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 Thank the, you. We can do DC, whatever yeah, you want. No, 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 um, we'll, 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 we'll go with the, you know, the Spidey quote, right? The great power and great responsibility, right? Mm-hmm, we, mm-hmm. we were given these awesome tools and rather than being judicious, we just declared game over. Right. We're like, wow, right. we won. Uh, right. <laughs> and uh, as soon as you, you know, that we joke in our lab sometimes that, you know, the easiest way to get a bacteria to become resistant is to, to tell, is to kind of whisper to them that you vanquished them. Right. Uh, and, and then, you know, that's, that's basically, you know, they hear bring it fucking on. Right. And uh, right. Uh, right. Well, and that's the thing uh, is like the bacteria is in our bodies and it's transmitted among all of us. Like you said, it's everywhere. And in every, every living thing is made up for it. So it's, we're like, oh no, it's sort of the prevalent, until, I guess, until this conversation and your news that has come out and as you're illustrating things is like, oh no, it's adapted to our cool tools and because we've used them so much and we can't go back and we have to design for a new world where very likely, I mean, it will happen at some point, a very nasty bug comes and we don't have a treatment for it, which has actually happened to quite a few people. Yeah. Um, but the the big discovery is is the post-credit scene of Thanos where you're like, oh, fuck, they've been able to do this all along. Yeah, are you yeah, are you yeah, talking yeah. about so, Infinity War again? Uh, no, yeah, you probably just pissed a bunch of people off, but nevertheless. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> including your co-host. <laughs> exactly. God. Uh, uh, so anyway, spoiler aside, uh, what I'll say is that the silver lining here though is Please. you know much like I think we might be able to do things with climate change is uh, us getting a little bit of humility and beginning to understand how is it that all of these bugs that are out there in the environment how have they coexisted 
for millions to billions of years. Right. right. So it's not like somehow the guys who had all the antibiotics wiped the rest of the guys out. Right. Why is it that we have hundreds of different species in our gut and thousands to millions of species in the soil? They figured out a way in which to work it out. And now I think especially in this era of the microbiome, appreciating that microbes live in communities, that are new strategies being considered to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't use the warfare analogy. Right. Maybe we shouldn't try to design these offense molecules that basically carpet bomb uh, uh, the entire microbial ecosystem every time we think we're sick. Right, because there's a lot of good shit in there. Exactly. And you wreck that too. Right. That is a uh, good so idea. maybe we begin to understand how is it that kind of microbes uh, collaborate and negotiate and figure out ways. I know, I know I'm, I'm humanizing this, but we can certainly find parallels and no. ways to say bugs have figured out a way in which to share and figure things out on their own. And when some bad stuff happens, they figure out a way in which to bounce back. No, we've got a lot to learn from it. And if we learn from that, we can come up with a brand new way of making therapeutics, which allows us to still not get sick or at least cure ourselves from when we do get sick, but not cause mayhem for all of the good bugs around when we do sure, that. Right. And so, so that's actually why I feel like, you know, despite all of this basically being bad news and, you know, quite often there is the, 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 the sort of uh, tentative hand that goes up at the end of my talk. And I'll paraphrase and they'll basically ask, uh, why are we not all dead yet? Based on what you just told us. Right. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and and of course, one of the reasons is because, uh, you know, humans do have a pretty badass immune system. Uh, so we should thank that for <laughs> for saving us. Right. Um, but I also think that the, the, the therapeutics of the future are not going to be a, 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 the same kind of antibiotics we've used all this time. Right. Um, because, again, like the reason these antibiotics are also problematic, and you kind of alluded to this, is. They're like Paul Ehrlich, one of these guys who in the early days of antibiotics called antibiotics magic bullets. Uh, and I, I, as many mm -hmm. times as I remember to do so in a talk, I'll say that, no, the antibiotics we know about are more like magic shotguns or more like, you know, magic bombs. They get deployed and they wipe everyone out, the good and the bad. Right. We need to come up with new ways that are very, very targeted that are able to go in and either suppress or wipe out the bad guys while allowing all of the other good bugs to, to, to sort of not just not be hurt, but maybe help us along the way. So that's where right, I think right. new therapeutics are going. And I think there's a lot of promise there. Right. And so and this is so let's turn towards the positive and the proactive and, and learning from 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 what we've learned. I mean, kill me. <laughs> um, so it almost. Uh, so talk to me now about your sort of particular angle and perspective with regards to designing the future of, and I almost hesitate now to call them antibiotics because it's clear we need to move on from both that terminology and how it's applied. Again, we can't just carpet bomb these things anymore. So knowing what you know now, how are we moving forward? Sure, a, a number of ways. And, I, and some of this is what we're doing directly. There's also a lot of other people doing it too. And so the most direct application that comes out of the work that we just published actually still goes back to the old paradigm. So it's, it's still saying, uh, even if we come up with new ideas as stopgap measures, we need, to wait, we need to figure out ways in which to at least make derivatives of the old antibiotics to push the ball a little bit further down the field. And so one way in which you can do that is when we discovered how these bugs in the soil are eating the antibiotics, it all comes down eventually to enzymes, right? This is the activity that particular proteins have. And we figure out which enzymes break down penicillin in, 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 different, in different ways. And so effectively, what we figured out now is a strategy for kind of breaking penicillin down into its, its, its smaller building blocks, right? Any chemical is kind of like a Lego structure, right? You can take it apart and then get down to the, the most fundamental building blocks. 
And it's an, it's an old idea that uh, one way in which to make new antibiotics is to break the old antibiotics down into sort of smaller structures and then make sort of chimeric structures to make uh, Franken molecules. Right? Take half of one molecule and another of another molecule and another of another yeah. and put it together. And once it's stitched together chemically, you can test if it has new properties. And so by discovering these bugs that have new activities to break down penicillin, we've potentially liberated, uh, uh, you know, at least in this case, specific building blocks, but also ways in which to, if we keep doing this with other antibiotics, other ways to break them down into these parts that can be built back up. So that's one direct application area where, you know, inadvertently by understanding how these bugs are munching on antibiotics, we've kind of liberated or made available uh, building blocks or tools for making new Franken molecules. But that's mm-hmm. that still keeps us though in the in the realm of antibiotics, right? They're still going to be like sort of you know bombs or, or shotguns. Uh, right. what, what, with the rest of our work that we, we that our lab works on, which is, as I tell you, looking at microbial communities, understanding how, for instance, antibiotics affect the developing microbiota in, in kids and in preterm infants and in term infants. A lot of that work is really focused on developing new therapeutics for the future that are micro-based. So a lot of other work. And so mm-hmm. our engineering of the E. coli strain uh, that could eat penicillin is related in some ways to other work that we're doing to say, okay, can we take some strains of E. coli uh, that could actually work as a probiotic, right? Where E. coli, uh, in, in this case, under very strict control, would go into the gut where it's a normal member. But now, rather than producing an antibiotic, maybe it produces a very specific type of protein on its surface or a very specific type of molecule, which is heavily tuned towards a very specific pathogen. So it does nothing else to any of the other bugs around. But if for some reason, Mm -hmm. as example, cholera comes through, Vibrio cholera comes through, now this engineered strain recognizing something that's very exclusive to Vibrio, to cholera, and then brings it out of the gut. Well, it sounds like a lot of what we're really trying to focus on with 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 cancer and and immunology and the targeted absolutely. stuff. Absolutely, yeah. um, in, in the sense that, and I don't know if I've mentioned uh, talked about this before, but I feel like I have this theory that a uh, philosophy that you know we're going to look back at the 20th century and be like, man, there's a few things that we're so thankful and and we we needed and we built on. But, you know, 20 years from now, we're going to look back and be like, man, can you believe that was our best option? And it feels like, you know, driving cars is one of those, like, holy shit, how do we let humans drive cars? Like, it was amazing. I still think that now. A million and a half people died across the world every year, you know? Um, And the the second is chemotherapy, which has been incredible and has saved so many lives, but is, talk about a shotgun, I mean, the most blunt instrument, quite literally, humanly possible. Absolutely. Um, is often as bad as the disease itself. And we're going to look back and say, well, thank God we had that. But at the same time, that you, was do it. you remember when when that was our best option? Yeah. And it and it feels like hopefully in this case, with that, with targeted therapies, uh, which are still incredibly early for cancer. And, and so it seems like that here, which is like, it really is a, it's a paradigm shift and it's going to take a hell of a lot of work. But imagine if we could if we could do that if we could focus on the specific bug with, with without wiping out the good stuff yeah I agree. It's, it's it is preliminary that you know we, we we have a ways to go but it's really promising and it's also promising when similar strategies come from very very different fields right it's heartening when people are thinking of personalized cancer cell specific therapies at the same yeah. time that people are thinking of pathogen virulence specific therapeutics as well right and so I think there's this idea that is a bit wishy-washy and undefined in terms of personalized medicine from a molecular perspective, at least, really, personalized medicine is saying, 
not just for the person, but for the specific disease manifestation in that person, we're going to have a therapy that we can dial up for you, right? The one other right. thing I do want to mention in terms of, you know, we shouldn't be, you know, overly optimistic. We should you know, maintain some level of being uh, scared. Uh, and that is, you know, everything you talked about in terms of chemotherapy, the estimate is, uh, you know, if our antibiotic resistance rates continue going the way they do and we don't come up with new antibiotics and ways to fight resistance, oh it's yeah, not really going to matter that we have chemotherapeutics because as soon as you get immune compromise from whatever cancer treatment you have, you're going to die because of an infection. Anytime you go in to get your hip replaced, right? It's like pneumonia. You don't die from pneumonia. You die because you get something else, right? So this is this is why wow. uh, that's an additional motivation, right? So there's this really scary report that came out of the UK Prime Minister's office about three or four years ago that said by the year 2050, at current rates, knowing that cancer will continue to increase in rates, by that point, antibiotic-resistant infections will kill more people on the planet than cancer will. Uh, oh, wow. Something like 10 million people. Uh, uh, will die annually from drug-resistant infection. That's one person dying every three seconds from a drug-resistant infection uh, as, as compared to, uh, you know, that 10 million number now is close to about a million. So we'll have an order of magnitude increase if we don't do something in terms of the people dying from drug-resistant infection. So, yeah, and so so on that note, the, the number, you know, of people that will be affected, like you said, we're, we're still in the current paradigm. You know, we're not, we're not ready to move on quite yet. Like there, there was the recent news of, childhood disease just tanking in Africa because of, you know, basic antibiotic distribution. You which know, seems which is, so common sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, we should use these? Great. However... But then, you know, the question arises naturally about overprescription, you know? So are we going to do the same that? thing to those kids uh, that we've done to ourselves in the West? And this is the balance that you always have to walk, right? Because right. no matter what, as much as I'm going to go on my, uh, you know, campaign high horse to say be more judicious with antibiotics if the choice is saving a kid's life it's a no-brainer you oh, yeah, can sure. save that kid's life no matter what country they're from right um, yeah. but i think again this is where our commitment to understanding how microbes work is going to come help us so yes as a stopgap measure if we realize that broad spectrum over-the-counter or you know outpatient antibiotics are going to help save kids in africa because it helps with their malnutrition symptoms or whatever you will yes we'll, we'll absolutely support that the WHO actually has a recommendation to do that, but yeah. what we need to immediately commit to is understand why is that working, right? So it's similar to this antibiotic eating story. It was fine to describe the phenomenon, but way more important to figure out how it worked. And right. so right. I hypothesize, as many others have, is that the way those antibiotics are working to help those kids is probably at least partly through their microbiome, through the modulation of the good bugs that are in there. And if we could figure that out, now we could potentially come up with therapies that might be food-based or they might be probiotic-based that give us the same benefit, sure. but we don't need to use the antibiotics, and so then you don't have resistance. So I think that's the balance, right? You, you, when you, There's always prioritization that occurs. Life is always going to be more important than anything else, and so we'll of save course. the lives. And then while we're doing that, we figure out how, and then we'll replace them. I think that's also, in my opinion, the way to address the, the, the elephant in the room of antibiotic use in agriculture, right? So certainly we overuse right. antibiotics in humans, but the rough estimate is something like 80% by weight of antibiotics in the U.S. are right. used to make our meat cheaper. That's a pretty shitty use of that. Incredible. <laughs> right? It's incredible. Uh, unbelievable. But again, I, I don't think that the simple, that, you know, fixing that by banning antibiotic use is not going to work. Um, you know, the agricultural industry is very powerful and they will legitimately turn around and say, Mary. why are you trying to destroy our lifestyle, right? And so what we need to do is figure out 
If they use those antibiotics to make the animals a little bit bigger, why is that working? And again, it's probably going to come down to some effect of that antibiotic on the host and the microbiome. And maybe we can come up with specialized probiotics for animals, which then reserve the antibiotics for us. Wow. Yeah, what a shocker. Like, duh, think, don't just use it and then go, great. Think about why and how. Yeah, <laughs> it might be important. <laughs> and it's nuts, um, right? We've been using it. We've been using these antibiotics for, for animal you know, growth promotion for, God, at least 50 years, if not more, 50, yeah. 60 years. It's, it's irresponsible that we as a field haven't figured out how they work. Right. Right. Ugh. Right. Well, this has been incredibly nerdy and fantastic. <laughs> um, so getting back to what we first said, you know, what we need to figure out is how our listeners who are, you know, how are they being affected by this? And then how, how can they contribute uh, to the future, to the, to the next paradigm? Right. Well, so, so what we want to work on is sort of what are the big actionable questions the rest of us should be asking of ourselves and sort of in using their voice, you know, their vote and their, and their dollar. To help you guys ask the right questions to start pointing us in the right direction so that we can uh, set up the next 25 years, your children, my children. Well, I think, you know, my uh, eventual children. Like, like everything else that we're facing right now, facts matter, right? Knowledge matters. <laughs> education matters. And, <laughs> right. And, Real you know, facts will Probably fact. preaching to the choir on this podcast. But, uh, you know, I think just taking personal responsibility for understanding the, the actions we make vis-a-vis something like antibiotics, right? So there's there's stats out there to show that it, if you take any five-year age bin in the U.S., it's the zero to five-year-old uh, age bin where we dump the most per capita antibiotics in. Put another way, we give our kids more antibiotics than any other part of our lifetimes. And when people look at whether that's warranted or not, a huge amount of that antibiotic use, which is really antibacterial use, is retrospectively really for a viral infection, which does nothing, right? You're doing nothing good there. So just the next time that your kid is sick, whoever you are, right, or your grandkid is sick or your your friend's kid is sick, just ask your physician, point blank, is this antibiotic going to help my kid? As opposed to demanding because your kid is sniffling and you're pissed off and you haven't slept and like, God damn it, just give them some drug and I'll be okay, right? Uh, most of those antibiotics are unwarranted. Let your physician, let your pediatrician make that decision. So that's one. The second, as you talked about, you're putting your money where your mouth is and putting your vote where your, uh, your mouth is, if you will. Um, you know, McDonald's announced a couple of years ago they were voluntarily going to start moving to meat that doesn't have antibiotics in its rearing over the next couple of years. Do you think that McDonald's did that because they suddenly became prescient or like, let's do good for the, the world? Bullshit. They did it because Definitely. they finally figured out that that's what their consumers wanted. So if we go in and start saying, OK, you know what? I can't afford to have only organic, pure, antibiotic free meat uh, for every meal that I have. Maybe once a week for the next year, I'm going to try doing that. And then eventually, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it'll be a slippery slope. And I'll just get used to this idea that you know what, maybe I'll eat a little bit less meat next year. Uh, I can't do that right away. And by you, you know, I'll, I'll move those savings onto buying meat that was raised without antibiotics, right? And then finally, it's just very simple things like reporting, right? So how else are you going to know without collecting data uh, what we should actually fix? So what's bizarre is that we have legislation in this country that requires hospitals to report how much antibiotics what antibiotics they use, what concentrations all over the place, right? But there is no such legislation required for how many and what type of antibiotics are used in animal agriculture. Uh, you know, and all of that is voluntary. 
that's a sim- that's a which, simple law that we can wow, fix. Wow, how right? is that this possible? Which right, like you said, is insane. If if eighty percent of them by volume are going to animals, it's like who gives a shit about the twenty yep. percent that are going to humans that's at this insane. point? It's like it's that no, I, I would, no, to, to push back against that. Just I mean, it does. The twenty percent does matter because the, the, no, the, of course it does. But the point is, we're yes, missing yes, a exactly. phenomenal again, chunk. This is just so Whoa. we can decide how to mitigate, right? Uh, we're not saying that, and this is where again having the conversation be, you know, uh, trying to find the middle ground, trying to say, look, we're not asking you for your antibiotic use patterns because we want to ban this practice. We want to help you come up with the most sustainable, probably cheaper way for you to eventually grow your meat. We just need the stats right now. Uh, so, so I think those are a few few methods, right? You know, just educate yourself and ask the right questions of your physicians. There's a reason that they are in the hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. It's because they learned some shit along the way right uh, uh in terms of knowing what prescriptions to give you uh and then also uh you know uh, uh vote for the people or, or incentivize your politicians and your the people who sell you your food uh to, to, to preserve the antibiotics for us right right yeah a... <laughs> all right so uh we're getting getting close to time here and and uh, god and we cannot thank you enough uh for being here today and chatting with us this has been oh, my incredible pleasure. it's been fun do you? Yeah, good, good. Um, do you have uh, you have any suggestions on who else we could talk to, or should talk to? I guess uh, about this specific topic, or just in general. Well, no. I mean, I'm sure people never get tired of hearing about how we're all going to die. <laughs> but um, no, you know uh, what we really focus on, and hopefully that came through in both our invitation to you and in our time today is what are the conversations that need to be happening about things trending towards the I hate to use the word existential, but right. Um, the more impactful things that are either happening to everyone now uh, and either they don't know about it, don't know enough about it, aren't being told enough about it, or it's just getting buried by all the other news every day or are definitely going to happen to them and their loved ones in the next five to 20 years. So again, that's everything from biotech uh, and biology to climate change to, to space exploration to nukes. Uh, and and stuff like that. But we really want to try to highlight the, you know, find the people that can come on that are, that are down in the trenches doing this stuff every day that people don't know about that, 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 that they can learn from. And then again, the goal of these things, because we have such an actionable crowd in what is probably the most important year of our lives uh, voting wise uh, to provide them with actions uh, that they can, that we can formulate over the course of an episode that they can work on, uh, to again help make some change. Sure, yeah. So I can suggest a couple. They're, they're, you know, including out of my field, just people who've inspired me in terms of thinking in new ways. Uh, one yes, is uh, her name is Rachel Dutton. Uh, she actually has been on, in the news a little bit, um, and she works on something that some people might dismiss as not being serious science. But I think it's some of the most serious science being done out there. She works on the microbiome of cheese. Um, I mean, got to do that exactly. So and so, she's just learned some some really incredible things about you know this 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 ancient process of you know rotting and fermenting food and how we've figured out how the bacteria out there you know changing you know, these building blocks into things that are new and and really using that not just obviously to to have uh, the product of your research be really yummy but uh, also understand <laughs> some really really basic fundamental aspects of microbes talking to each other and how they produce compounds that kind of are cooperative versus offensive and so then she just tells a really cool story so I think she'd be someone uh, who'd be need to talk to. 
uh, another person who's way out of my field, but uh, I think she just does really cool work. And she's a, a young assistant professor. Her name is Sarah Horst, H-O-R-S-T. Uh, she's at Johns Hopkins University, uh, and she works in space. And so, uh, you know, she literally does space. rocket science. One of those people. Huh? One of those people. <laughs> <laughs> Very humbling to talk to people like that. But uh, but I just, I've, I've heard her uh, her. her talk uh, in person once, and she's just very eloquent. Uh, but also what I really like about Sarah is that her work is, even though she's, you know, she's only a few years into running her own lab. I mean, I follow her on Twitter and on Facebook. She's really impassioned about making sure she's, that that uh, every one of her mentees is well supported. And she thinks about the place of the science in the, uh, sorry, the scientists within the science. And so I think she, you know, she, she, she clearly thinks across many scales, right? All the way to how do you collect data out, uh, you know, on Saturn, uh, <laughs> down to how to make sure that uh, uh, the youngest and the most vulnerable amongst us uh, are well supported. So, uh, you know, she'd be someone else who I think would be able to provide Again, across these very different scales, uh, a good conversation about what the next steps might be. Uh, and if I think of a few other people, I'll, I'll send you know the names your way. But um, yeah, I think, that'd be honestly, Thank you. you know, there's. Uh, I think this is the cool thing about being in science is that virtually any time you you open up a magazine, uh, well, nerdy magazine at least, uh, uh, that yeah. uh, uh, you're amazed that people are doing such cool, awesome, wonderful things that. Uh, you barely understand, uh, but but no, it's going to change. You know the way we we do things in the future. So. Well, and that's the key. And we want to highlight those people and the things they're working on because they are either affecting folks or they're going to. And and by the way, on your recommendations, please always send them whenever you want. Um, uh, and it, like we discussed, non-white guys always great. Yeah, um, yeah. We'll just thank you very much yeah, for that. Yeah, yeah. Neither of two of those. I mean, the neither of them are white guys. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll take it. Got him. We have uh, just the last few questions we like to ask everybody, sort of a little bit of a lightning round, if that sounds all right. Sure. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. Um, when was the first time this is, I got to move this out of the lightning round. No, lightning um, fast. When was the first time in your life you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? Oh God. Yeah. yeah. Definitely rapid question, right? Uh, yeah. You're, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Look, you're working on it. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think uh, it may have been at the, at some point in uh, my PhD when I was uh, working on uh, uh, something unrelated to what I do now, which was uh, trying to solve the structure of a protein that our lab had designed uh, that had never been seen in nature before. So it was, you know, trying to make, uh, uh, you know, just completely from scratch uh, uh, and uh, used a, a process called X-ray crystallography. Uh, and I was sitting there, like you know, even nerdier than I am now, I think, uh, in a dark Impressive. room with with three D goggles. And for the first time, when I saw that structure materialize on the screen, uh, it was it was close to a moment. Like you know, I'm not sure I cried at that point, but I sort of maybe cried inside just to see, like Jesus Christ, this is super awesome. <laughs> we can do stuff of this type. Uh, and so that time, it was that point. I was like, and I'm just really, really, really excited to be part of this. And so I think that was that was a jazzy moment. So. I like it's his, that's his previous, you know, my, my previous job's like lifeguard at a pool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was a stock boy at a gas station. Pretty cool. All right. People needed you. You're essential. Uh, very oh, good answer. God. Got him. Um, uh, got him. How do you consume the news? So probably pretty lazily. My home screen is Google news. So I'm sure that, you know, they're just preaching to my choir all the time, but the one oh, way sure. that I change that a little bit is, uh, I try to, I've kind of tried to switch around like, uh, 
which sections are sent to me. So I, like, I, I grew up in India, so I try to have like the World News US edition and World News India edition, and it's it's bizarre. It's like two different worlds are being looked at. But, but that's kind of, you know, it's the, the aggregator version. Um, I also have an Android phone, so I get news for that. Um, and then I signed up, uh, you know, after the, the, the devastation of November 8th, 2016, I subscribe to the Washington Post, um, so so I do get their daily briefing, uh, which you know is super right. fucking uplifting. So uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> always <laughs> on that <laughs> note. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that, that was a, this is a perfect segue. Our uh, our we listed one of our favorite questions. If, if you could Amazon Prime one book to Donald Trump, what would it be? Oh Jesus! So hopefully, there's a book on how to read, right? But I don't think the dude reads anything, so. <laughs> right, I don't, uh, <laughs> How come I all know, of our we, guests we say that? We get that every time. But uh, again, we're going to say, assume uh, it's either with pictures uh, <laughs> or someone is going to read it to him. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. Knowing that he won't read it, but maybe one of his advisors would. You know, I might recommend uh, that he reads the Doomsday book. Uh, it's this really cool fiction book about, I, mean, I don't want to give anything away, but uh, it involves a little bit of time travel, but it's just kind of, uh, uh, uses it as a way to, to send this researcher back to the time of the plague, recognizes the humility of, of humanity in, in doing so. So I, these are not words that he's going to recognize or understand, but maybe some of his <laughs> advisors might. So Perfect. We'll take it. Awesome. Uh, is there anything else you would like to say, anything truth to power uh, you want to say to our, our amazing listeners here before we sign off? I think you already said it, man. That this this November is a time to to you know to, to not check it out, and so you know show up, and uh, uh, hopefully we'll be on a better path, uh, you know, to to empower what happens in 2020. So vote, rock and roll, rock and roll, vote, fucking vote. Awesome, uh, Gotham. Where can our listeners follow you uh, and your crew of bandits online? Uh, so certainly our website, we try to keep as uh, up-to-date as possible. It's just dantaslab.org. Uh, but then I also have a Twitter uh, account, uh, at VolatileBug. Of, co- <laughs> of course that's what your Twitter handle Yeah, those are probably the two best. Um, you know, our lab really has all of the science nerdy stuff. The, the Twitter account is probably just marginally less nerdy, but every once in a while I'll post something that's a little bit more interesting. Um, it's all relative. Perfect. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Gautam, uh, we cannot thank you enough for your time today. This is just fantastic. Thanks, Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and we'll we'll be sure to check in uh, at some point and, and do this again when you've got another revelation that could kill a billion people. <laughs> or save them. Or save them. Save them. Save them. That's what we're going for. Uh, that's what we're going for. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time and, of course, for all that you do out there for everybody. Thanks to our incredible guest today, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. 
And you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. 